0: You're listening to the Hoosier State Sports Show with Adam and Joey.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to the Hoosier State Sports Show. A bit of a depressing edition of the Hoosier State Sports Show, I should say. Uh, My name's Joey. I'm joined, as always, by my friend Adam. How's it going, Adam? Depressed now that
0: I heard you say all that. I was doing good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure you can guess why I'm a little bit depressed. Yeah. It's been a tough road for Purdue fans like myself since Friday evening.
0: Many years before that, too. But,
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I've kind of been dreading this, but I'm just going to dive right in if you don't care, Adam. We have a lot to say. Well, first, why don't you run through what all we're going to talk about today?
0: Yeah, let's do it. So this week, we've got Purdue makes history in all the wrong ways. IU men's team was eliminated in the round of 32 while IU's women's team is still dancing. Colts are staying active in free agency. And finally, do the Pacers have a shot at the playoffs?
1: Pretty interesting. We've been all over the place with the Pacers, you know. Go for a draft pick, go for the playoffs, but we'll get into that in a bit.
0: But start, start things
1: off, I'm going to get this out of the way. I'm going to try not to cry. I'm going to try not to get mad. I'm just going to stay calm about this, all right? So, Purdue... Let's talk about the, the second-worst loss that Purdue suffered this past week, and that was the Purdue women's team, who, as I mentioned last week, was playing in the 11-seed play-in game against St. John's. And unfortunately, the later Boilers lost in a heartbreaker by a score of 66-64. to 64. The Boilers tied the game with 30 seconds remaining with a layup from Laisha Petrie, who was the leading scorer for the Boilers. But St. John's went down and knocked down a jump shot with zero seconds on the clock to take the lead and obviously win the game. Petrie finished with 20 points and eight rebounds. And Caitlin Harper added 14 points and six rebounds. Like I said, tough loss. I mean, it's hard enough to get bounced out of the tournament, but doing it on a buzzer beater is even worse. But moving on to, (laughs) as I said, the worst loss of the weekend might be the worst loss in Purdue's history if we're being completely honest so you alluded to it when you was telling us what we was talking about Purdue made history Friday night in all the wrong ways so it was embarrassing I'm going to list a few reasons why that loss was embarrassing by Purdue and before I get into this I apologize to all the listeners if I'm a bit long-winded um you can ask Adam I've been pretty quiet since Friday I've I got a lot to get off my chest. It just took me a couple of days to process everything.
0: Yeah, I've been waiting for it. I've been looking forward to this conversation all weekend.
1: Well, that makes one of us. <laughs> so, as I said, made history, got embarrassed. Let's kind of talk about why this was such a historic and embarrassing loss for Purdue. So, obviously, it was only the second time ever that his 16 seed has defeated defeated a one seed in the tournament. I'm a little bit more appreciative that Virginia lost a few years ago. Now that takes a bit away, a little bit of the sting, but not all of it.
0: But it's still two and one hundred and fifty game or two yeah. wins, one hundred and fifty losses. Just Thanks, for the Adam. Record.
1: I needed that reminder. You're welcome. <laughs> all right. So why else is this historic? Farley Dickinson did not even win their conference tournament and only made the big dance because of a technicality. The conference champ was in the middle of transitioning to D1, so they were not ineligible. So to add a little bit more pain, Farley Dickinson didn't even rightfully punch their ticket to the big dance, and Purdue still lost to them. Not to mention, in the 2021 and 2022 season, Farley Dickinson only won four games. So that's not bad for them, going from winning only four games in the NEC to – getting into the tournament, albeit thanks to a technicality and ultimately defeating a one seed in Purdue. So now that I got all that out of the way, let's kind of talk about the game for a minute. And then there's all kinds of talking points after this that me and Adam are going to dive into. So looking at the game, as we said, Purdue lost. The score was 63-58. to 58. So what's the biggest problems? Well, you look at our season as a whole, the biggest problem has been Turnovers and our inability to knock o- knock down open shots. So in this game in particular, Purdue finished the game with 16 turnovers and only shot five of 26 from three. Not good. I mean, it only no. scored 58 points. You can see right there why: 16 turnovers and only five threes for the entire game. Another contributing factor was our freshman guards, which this was a concern, you know, all season because come tournament times, guard play is pretty important and despite Braden smith and fletcher lawyer overall having a decent season as freshmen uh Braden smith committed seven of the team's turnovers so we're talking nearly half of the turnovers came from one guy and yeah ugly to,
0: game by you him know, you
1: have to count that uh you know just not having the experience but you know it's kind of tough for the season to end that way i'm sure he'll be back and hungrier than ever next year but uh, So, Zach Eady had a pretty decent game, 21 points, 15 rebounds. But the thing is, and I, I'm pretty sure you watched this game, Adam.
0: Yes, I did. you
1: doubled and sometimes even triple teamed him, which, of course, they had to because their tallest guy was nearly a foot shorter than him. But they were able to get away with this, Adam, because, as we mentioned, Purdue couldn't knock down their shots. I mean, they were leaving guys wide open. I mean, like, shooting, you know, Pre-game shoot around open and they couldn't hit him or as the announcers pointed out plenty of times they just seemed too scared to shoot it and so like i said they got away with double triple teaming Dakiti and even though he finished with the 21 points 15 rebounds ultimately wasn't enough thanks to as we mentioned in weeks past not getting any help from the supporting cast uh, so this is kind of where we kind of <laughs> dive in to kind of a touchy subject depending on who you who you talk to so in this game particular I noticed myself some questionable coaching by Matt Painter you know there was a couple times that Purdue would go on a run then Painter would make a substitution that would kind of shift the momentum back to FDU and I'm gonna throw out two examples so these are the ones that stood out to me so Mason Gillis knocked down a three which as we mentioned was a struggle for them and then immediately after that Matt Painter subbed him out. I think within 30 seconds of him knocking down a three, so no real chance of him getting into any kind of rhythm. And then another scenario: Fletcher Lawyer completed a one an and one opportunity, and then literally as soon as that free throw went in, he subbed him out. So those are just two examples I noticed of Purdue starting to go on a little bit of a run, and then Purdue or then Painter would make that sub and like I said, basically take away all the momentum we had and give it back to FDU. But that kind of got me thinking, and I know you and I have kind of had some, you know, pre-podcast discussions about this, but yeah, there's a lot of discussions going on among Purdue fans. You know, a couple of the Facebook groups I'm in, a lot of people think that Painter should be on a short leash. And I'm going to throw out a couple of reasons why I would agree with them. I'm not saying I do yet. And then I want us to kind of talk about what we think, Adam. So, obviously, the struggle is and has been in the tournament. So, let's look at the last three tournaments for Purdue. In 2021, Purdue lost to the 13-seed North Texas. Go forward one year, 2022, last year. Lost to the 15-seed St. Peter's team. And then, of course, this year, lost to 16-seed FDU. This is significant because this makes Purdue the first team in the history, the entire history of the tournament to be eliminated by a 13-seed or lower in three consecutive years. So you pair this with the wow. fact that Painter, the Painter-led Boilermakers have only made one Elite Eight appearance and have never had a Final Four appearance. So clearly there is a case to be made when you look at the tournament success. So my question for you, Adam looking at the tournament success only do you think that's enough to to make a move on Painter or at least put him on the hot seat
0: well let me let me throw out something that I was actually discussing with a colleague today so her comment was pretty simple to me she said she had a conversation with her father about it over the weekend and she said that Painter's biggest problem right now is he is playing to not lose instead of playing to win
1: that's a good point
0: when you start considering the overall success of that. And again, I've said it on this podcast before, I think the biggest problem is honestly painter's biggest strength. And that is his development of the power forward and center positions. When you start looking at tournament success and you alluded to it a few minutes ago, you talked about guard play and how vital that that is. You look at Purdue's guards they did not do anything substantial like you were talking about with the turnovers. Like I watched this game actually rooting for Purdue. And the problem is, is yes, there is a lot of missed calls by the refs in my opinion against Farley Dickinson. We won't jump too much into that because I'm going to have my personal bias against IU as well in terms of that this weekend. But when you're still a team that had, what was, I think the odds, I believe, were Purdue was projected to win that game by 24. which sounds about right. Which I believe also was one of the largest margins in tournament history, if not the largest. But a lot of people had said that Purdue was this team where they wouldn't be surprised to see them lose in the first round against them. So Purdue's got a reputation now. Of losing, And I think you alluded to it with the reasons why the last couple of years combined with, you know, Purdue's overall lack of success. Now, I have a yes and a no answer for your initial question of should he be on a short leash? Should he be fired? If I'm being an IU fan, of course I don't want him fired because he's making IU look better. Pushing that aside, though, realistically speaking, he should be on the short leash i think purdue has kind of gotten to this point where they are a good team and they are a good team every year but good doesn't push you to great unless something starts to change like i said it it's back to that metaphor i talked about painter is playing to not lose instead of playing to win now you've you've been very prideful and don't disagree with me here for years about painter's ability Low-rated prospects. Am I am I right on that?
1: Yeah, you're correct. We've we've even talked about that on this podcast before.
0: So the problem is, is when you cannot land marquee talent and have to rely on developing players. At some point, you want a good player to just come in and be ready to take the helms. And I'm and I'm going to allude to Trace Jackson Davis. He was an All-American this year, and like Edie, but He was a highly rated prospect. People knew what he was capable of coming in, and he's performed to that regardless of who the coach is. Because Archie Miller, in my opinion, was one of IU's worst coaches in history. But for Trace Jackson Davis to do what he did despite the coaching says what you need to know about having elite talent on your team and being able to get prospects. Now, we've talked about...
1: Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Adam.
0: I was just going to talk about how I know that Purdue is getting Florid Bladinga, who is the fourth highest rated prospect in the country for next year. I know that there's a lot of interest from Purdue for him, but again, it goes back to that problem of he is a center. He is 6'10". It doesn't take care of Purdue's guard problem. So I would say, you know, you put him on a leash, but to be fair, Gene Keedy was would have never – there would have been no discussions about him being fired. And if you think about Matt Painter in the same light, he's also the same type of coach. Again, Purdue, I think, is tired of not being successful. And I know that stings a little bit to say. But at some point, you have to, you have to pull a trigger and take a risk. So that's kind of my piece on that.
1: All right. Well, and for my end, as a Purdue fan, I'm going to present this to you and then I'm going to give you you know, my final conclusion on what I think they should do with Matt Painter. Yeah. So we talked about the extremes of the tournament and the lack of success. But I want to present to you the, the other end of the extremes. And this kind of, you know, is to defend the other side here. So if you take away all the tournament stuff, Matt Painter has proven to be a great head coach, you know, overall. Completely So in agree. his 17 seasons in West Lafayette, I'm going to throw out a few statistics Number one, he has averaged over 23 wins per season. That's pretty good. He has been named the Big Ten Coach of the Year four times. Should have been five this year, but in my personal opinion, he got robbed.
0: Agree, actually, with that
1: one. And the seven most winningest classes in Purdue history have all come under Matt Painter. So, I told you that extreme. We threw out the extremes of the tournament and the lack of success there. Here is my my proposal. I agree. Matt painter should be on a short leash. We talked about it. They had two freshman guards this year, Braden Smith and Fletcher. Willier. We talked about how important guard play is in the, in the, the national tournament. So while there's no guarantee of what the teams will look moving forward. And I plan to dive into this a little bit more next year or next week about, you know, the potential of Zach Edie returning what the transfer portal looks like, but assuming both braden smith and fletcher lawyer come back i give matt painter the time that he has with them to develop them you know get them to their junior and senior year if they're here that long and if they don't have any type of success if they don't if they don't make a you know another elite eight or even final four then i think you cut the ties and that is coming from a purdue fan that as you mentioned i've been a big big backer of matt painter and i I mean basically since I watched Purdue I didn't I didn't really get into college ball till probably 15 20 years ago so that's right around the time Painter would have taken over but I do believe he should be on a short leash but I'm willing to give him you know his next two or three years with Smith and Lawyer. I feel like that's a fair you know a fair amount of time to see if once he gets these guards coached up if if he can have any type of any type of success moving forward. All right, what are I... your thoughts on that?
0: I was going to say, I I actually, as much as I despise Purdue in some senses, I think that's a completely unfair way to assess whether Matt Painter should be fired or not. Here's the problem. You just alluded to what he's did well. He's averaged 23 wins per season. That's better than if I'm going to say it, probably every other team in the big 10 besides Michigan state in terms of overall success in the regular season. We've talked again about how, He has been the Big Ten coach for four times. He has these high, or he has these well-developed draft classes. You know, he's had Jaden Ivey go early. Caleb Swanigan was a first-round pick. He's developed great centers like Isaac Haas. You know, you look at the development of the team that he has. I don't think that two point guards who probably were not highly evaluated to come in to begin with, is the best way to do it. Here's my thoughts on this. Again, you have to look at the team as a whole. I agree with your stance that he should be on the short leash, but my proposal is a little more practical, and this is where my thinking comes in, knowing how I felt about IU and Mike Woodson had he not won a tournament game. If Purdue gets out in the first... Year, regardless of what their seed is, he should be out. And here's the only reason I'm I'm giving him the light of day. And we talked about it last week. Is this idea that Matt Painter was not supposed to lead this team where they even got to this season? Again, take the two losses to Occasion and Purdue lost what three games? One of them to Rutgers, which was a which was bad luck and was a one point loss. And then I I don't know who the other losses were to
1: Northwestern and Maryland. So again, and I don't believe
0: that those were big losses either. Were they? No, no. So again, you, you contribute the fact that he's won most of the games that he should. And then the second thing you have to think about, who do you replace him with? Again, he studied under Gene Keady for probably what? 10 years, at least. Who is Purdue's best coach in history? There's probably some tricks of the trade that Painter can still learn. And I don't I don't ever see Painter coaching anywhere else. That is well, my I would just like assessment. to say two
1: things if you don't mind, Adam. Go first ahead, off, go ahead. I'm kind of confused because you said the parameters that I laid out weren't fair to him, but then you followed that up with if he's out in the first round next year, you fire him regardless. So I'm trying to understand how you said what I laid out was unfair to him. And second of all, what is the goal, Adam? Is it to win the Big Ten tournament? Is it to win the Big Ten regular season championships? If that's the goal, then Purdue's got IU by a mile. But anytime that Recently. we have these discussions, what's the one thing not so much you but most IU fans want to wave in front of our face those banners, correct? So and, I, and I'm not where to... I'm coming from is if the goal is to win a national championship, which should be the goal, you got to start making some progress in these tournaments. These first round exits to these, you know, low seeds are not going to cut it. But that's, so. what my, but that's what
0: my argument was. And that's what I'm saying. You ha- I think you have to win in the tournament next year. And truthfully, why I'm only saying you have to win one game is, you, it's like you alluded to. You don't know exactly what Zach is going to do. He'll probably stay. Purdue doesn't have any significant seniors graduating. You're right, he should develop what is already on the team. But again, it all depends on where they finish. Purdue is never supposed to be at this point. And I don't think it's it's not coming from an IU fan. This is coming from just the basic knowledge that Jaden Ivey was probably Purdue's best player in the last ten to fifteen years. And I and I mean that in the most respectful way. I don't think you can disagree with them given that you've chosen your NBA team on him as well. But laying that aside, my my argument again is presented from the standpoint like you just said of tournament success. I think he has to have success in the tournament regardless of the two players that you're alluding to.
1: Well, so that's my to argument. To be clear once again, Adam, we just talked about a few minutes ago how important guard play is in the big or in you're the right. national tournament. So one of the biggest Contributing factors to why we lost this game was our inability to knock down shots. That's where Fletcher Lawyer and Braden Smith come into play, and the the not being or not turning the ball over. As we mentioned, Braden Smith had seven turnovers. I'm okay with chalking both of those up to, you know, not having the experience. But if you get these two guys at the sophomore or even junior level and they're still committing these, you know, type of mishaps. And that says a lot more about coaching going into these tournaments than it does your players, which is why I'm going to base mine off of – I'm giving him the rest of their tenure with Purdue. And I do believe that's fair as a Purdue fan. And I, I, I don't know. Like I said, the goal is to win a national championship. The Big Ten tournament championship was nice. You know, the 25, 26, whatever it is, Big Ten titles we have is nice. But as a Purdue fan, to be completely honest with you, not only am I tired of IU fans waving those banners in front of my face, I'm ready for Purdue to get one. I mean, you can call me a disgruntled Purdue fan if you want. because I think I'm still a little hurt from Friday is what it boils down to. But give but me the think... three years, give or take, that he has with those guys. If we don't see in, at, at least another appearance in the of Eight, I think it's time to move on.
0: I can – I can sympathize with Purdue fans and honestly understand where the hurt comes from. You know, national championships are difficult. And again, when you look at IU's history, they talked this weekend about how like you have UCLA, Kentucky, Kansas, and UCLA, Kansas. Anyway, there's, there's basically three or four great teams. Oh, North Carolina. There we go. There's the final team. So you have those four teams that are at like over a hundred tournament wins. And then IU sits at like 67, you know, and I'm not saying this to, again, throw a statistic to brag in your face. And I agree. I use banners, you know, given that they were five years before I was born. So, you know, 35 year old, you know, banners, you know, I use where you guys are. We want some degree of success too. But my, my thing for Purdue, and it actually sounds like my leash is shorter than yours, I don't think he should – I don't think Painter should get the benefit of the doubt to develop those players. I think he has to start having that success now. You know, when you've, when you've got people lobbying for you to be fired, and this is on, like, Purdue sports websites. I was actually reading some of the comments myself through what Purdue students and people at Purdue think, and, you know – they're tired of it too. You know, you're not you're not alone in your thinking. I think, you know, the lease the leash should be short. And you know, you talked about the rest of the tenure of those two players. They're not NBA prospects. And and I'll find that out and I'll bite my tongue if I'm wrong later. But I think the problem of it is if Purdue cannot win to begin in the tournament regardless of their seed next year, even if they're a 16 seed and have to have a play in, if you can't win a play in it is the coaching. You're absolutely right. And then it's time to replace him. My leash is you win this year or you're out. Yours makes it sound like it could be up to two years, maybe even three. Just food for thought there for you.
1: Yeah. Either way, I want to throw this out there before we move on. Cause like I said, I knew I was going to be long-winded on this Purdue thing, but I had a lot yeah. on my chest. Understand. With all that being said, I have nothing but respect for Matt Painter. I do believe he's right up there with Gene Cady as one of the best coaches to ever coach this program and the, the stats that threw out there show that despite his lack of success in the tournament play. But with that, Adam, I'm officially done talking about Purdue right now. Next week, I kind of want to look at, you know, the potential of Zach Eady returning and what, what next season could look like. But for right now, I'm going to let you dive into IU and I'll, kind of cool my head off over here a little bit. <laughs> I
0: hope I didn't make you too mad there. Not no, my no, no, you didn't.
1: Like like I said, I had all this pent up in me since Friday. I can't even tell you, bro. Uh,
0: like I said, that's why right after that game, I didn't want to say a whole lot to you because it's like, I, and again, I watched that game as an IU fan and it's like, I, again, and I told you this all weekend, they, Purdue absolutely, in my opinion, got robbed of at least Five points that they should have had. There were some stupid turnovers that they just gave to Farley Dickinson. But that being said, let's kind of dive in just to kind of take a break from the men's perspective to dive into the IU women's talk for just a second. So I'm, I'll, I'll apologize in advance. There's going to be a lot of IU conversation for a little bit. So let's dive into what happened this past weekend. So the women's tournament started just like the men's did, and IU has played one game so far. They were a number one seed, as we alluded to last week, and they faced Tennessee Tech in the first round. Not a team that I had done any scouting on, so I didn't really know what to expect when I was watching this game on Saturday. Now, one thing to keep in mind, All-American forward McKenzie Holmes did not play in this game. Did not play. And I you still managed to win by 30. Now, granted, you can chalk it up to playing at Assembly Hall, which I guess the women's tournaments are a little bit different in that number one seeds actually get to play at their home for at least the first two rounds, if they win. So IU's women's team, which we'll talk more about their game later tonight is also again at assembly hall. So let's kind of look at what IU did in that game. So final score ended up being 77 to 47, very impressive win all around team effort. I think Tennessee tech kept up for maybe two minutes. And then use women's team just took off, you know, played a lot better than the men's team did this weekend. So this game was about Sydney Parrish who transferred in from Oregon this past year. Haven't really mentioned her name on the podcast very much, but with Holmes out, someone had to take over and she did. So she had 19 points and eight rebounds, really solid game. Grace Berger came in, contributed 17 points of her own with seven rebounds and four assists and she had an amazing play. I don't know if you got to watch it at all, but she had like two consecutive blocks on one possession against them. So it's like she had the block, made a jump again somehow to get a second block.
1: And that, that's an instant momentum changer right there.
0: And, you know, it. you did. You saw how deflated Tennessee Tech got after that part of that game. And in that particular game, Yarden goes Garzan. Again, they – had all sorts of conversations on the on their podcast about this because I guess her twin also is in college. Didn't know she was a twin until Uh Saturday too. fun fact of the day, but she had 12 points of her own. Now, again, I alluded to a minute ago that Mackenzie Holmes was out for that game with what was considered a knee tweak. She injured it, I guess last week when they were still playing the tournament. One big problem with that though, or not a big problem with it. One uh, benefit to that is that according to Coach Morin, she could have played against Tennessee Tech, but obviously, winning by 30, there was no need to jump the gun and take a risk. Right. Now, they play. You ready to hear this name? I use women's teams, plays Miami tonight.
1: What a coincidence, huh?
0: Yes. And I, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little scared Ole by the name, but looking at this game, IU is projected to win by 14 in your mind, or sorry, uh, that first game was pretty loud at assembly hall. Do you think that playing at home lands IU's women's teams enough, or IU women's team another victory tonight?
1: I won't go as far as saying it lands them another victory. Because nothing's guaranteed, as we've discussed in the month yeah. of March. Just ask my Boilermakers. But <laughs> I do think it plays into their favor. We've talked, you know, you've talked extensively over the past couple weeks about their struggles away from Assembly Hall. So playing down there in Bloomington definitely would give them a, an advantage. But one thing I do want to say is it is very important that IU does not take their foot off the gas. Uh, no. The Hurricanes are coming off a win over the eight seed Oklahoma State. And Miami was down by 17 at halftime of that game, Adam, and came back and won. So one thing of importance for IU, if they do get up a lead, do not take your foot off the gas because these hurricanes have shown the ability to make a, a furious comeback. And I'm sure that is the last way you would like the IU women's season to come to an end.
0: No, I, I last thing I need to do is cry in my sorrows that Miami beat us and everything this season. But <laughs> I, I'm not going to – I'll agree with you. I'm not going to go as far as to say that IU women's team has a guaranteed victory. But remember, in the regular season, they did not lose at Assembly Hall. So they're still undefeated at Assembly Hall to this right. point in the season. And their last game pretty much sold out. If you looked in this – if you go back and look at any of the game footage from this weekend, that was mostly IU fans in that stand. I don't know how that really equates with, Mar- with March Madness. I'm sure Miami fans might have a little bit more to say about that, obviously, than Tennessee Tech, just given the fact that Miami has a much bigger fan base. Right. But I, I would expect IU to win at least this game, and then one other key contributor, South Carolina landed a big win, and then the other number one seed. I want to say it was Vir- not Virginia Tech. I know because Stanford lost. They had another another one, number one seed in the women's bracket that also did really well and had a pretty big win. might have been LSU. They had a pretty big win as well, and they might even be a two seed. But, again, higher seeds in the women's bracket seem to have a more predictable likelihood of getting those wins. Hopefully that's the case that happens. This time it'll have good news to share next
1: week about that. And, of course – We're we're talking about this on Monday night. But if you're listening to this Tuesday, then you already know the results of this game. So hopefully we are both correct in thinking that IU will pull out the victory, but either way.
0: All right. Ooh, hang on just a second. My computer just shut down. So obviously we can jump into the men's That's lovely. The men's tournament last weekend. So IU did not lose in the first round like Purdue. I get one ouch. chance to I get one chance to brag about this. Ouch.
1: This But ouch, bro.
0: IU did face a more formidable opponent in Kent State. Now as a number 13 seed, they lost 8 games all season. You know, so it was not a team that IU was going to play around and mess with. Again, we alluded to the whole Kent State coach as a part of the Kelvin Sampson, you know, violations era. So IU did have that game go back and forth pretty early, but by halftime, IU had made it known that they would not be losing to Kent state. Now I know Tosh, our friend wanted to sit and say, Oh, that was a close game. It was not close. IU led by as much as 16 in the second half. But pretty much once I you got that big lead, they were able to coast most of the second half. I think they held it to like a minute left when they took Trace Jackson and a lot of the starters out and put the bench in. And speaking of Trace Jackson Davis, again, he had 24 points, 11 assists, and five blocks. I don't even know why I, have, I even say his stats. It doesn't surprise me anymore. <laughs> but we talked about last week heading into the tournament that someone step up for iu you had to have one key player and this for that first game it was race thompson now i will apologize in advance last weekend i insulted race thompson's ability to only play inside i don't know if you remember that or not but i even said he is not a three-point shooter you're gonna have to have someone else get out there and you know i i look really silly for that now so he actually ended up shooting some threes, went two for three last week or in that first game again. So he's took some shots in the second game against Miami even. And it's like, I wish we would have seen this side of him before, but he finished with 20 points and nine rebounds himself. and the Miller Cobb came in. He had 13 again, mostly shooting threes. Shafino kind of struggled and had eight. But again, those four were pretty much your scores for that game. Pretty solid game all around for the whole starting base, but obviously, then when they faced Miami last night, and I'm obviously you know, I haven't had as much time to recover because you know, I watched the whole game, unfortunately, keeping up with it or not. I did,
1: I did watch the second half of the game, which I will note is the only ounce of basketball I watched since Purdue's game on Friday because I was and still am hurt, which is why I have a hard time sympathizing with what you're about to tell us. So now I will let you continue, though. Now, IU
0: faced Miami, who was a fifth seed, and this was not a game that was going to ever be easy for IU. My honest opinion, and I said it, IU should have been a fifth seed, so Miami really was probably closer to a four seed. They averaged 81 points a game this season. They were the top team in the ACC. Not a team to play around with, and I don't really know what happened to IU exactly. I don't know if Miami is just that good of a team and they're just deciding to have a come-out party in the tournament, but Miami did, as Joey mentioned earlier, they got – Really close to losing the first round. And I think Miami came out and it's like, we have a lot of revenge to get in this game and make it clear that we are not the team that nearly lost. So Miami in that first half, they took a huge lead. I think it was like 12 or 13 points by four or five minutes into the game. And I about turned the IU game off. Then a coworker of mine said she did turn it off today and did not return knowing that the game was over at that point. But I decided, you know, I'm going to try to keep up with this and see what happens. So IU, by the end of the first half, they started making it competitive again. And they really did have glimpses of looking good. And I know, unfortunately, that's the part of the game for the most part that you missed other than right after the end of the first half. So IU comes into the second half and immediately they score seven in like the first minute and a half. So that actually gave IU a two-point lead. So IU kind of held on to that lead. I want to say it might have been a minute, maybe two at the most. But then Miami came back and surged, got ahead by 10 again. IU brought it back down to like three. Then Miami goes on another surge. And I think it was a story of that pretty much. If IU got anywhere close, Miami just put the foot their foot back on the gas pedal and did not let off at all again that game ended with IU losing 85 to 69 IU just kind of quit I think the last three minutes they knew it was over and Miami honestly deserved that win more than IU again I talk about how I think Purdue was robbed due to fouls IU has no excuses in my book there was a couple of misplays plays some turnovers that I really questioned not to mention there's a Jalen hood Shafino three that got converted back to a two point shot, which I didn't know that that was something you could do is take away points after you already judged a shot, but I digress on that point. So (laughs) let's talk about how they finished that game. So for trace Jackson's final game, he left it all on the court. Again, 23 points, eight rebounds, five blocks. Again, couldn't have asked for another great ending from him. you know. Solid game again for senior Race Thompson as well. He had 11 points and seven rebounds. Solid, not as good as his first game. But then Miller Cobb also contributed eight points and two steals. So again, your three leading seniors and three of your four leading scorers had pretty solid games. Huchifino again had another pretty solid game. He had 13, I believe, as well. So again, Joey, this is obviously a little bit different than Purdue's outlook. And I know you mentioned talking about it next week as well because I I have some notes already prepared for next week on, you know, the transfer portal since today's the opening of that. As I mentioned in my article I published on HoosierStateSports.com. But I want to ask you, you know, looking at IU's expectations for next year, how big of a loss are Trace Jackson Davis, Miller Cobb, race thompson and potentially jalen hood Shafino to that team
1: well no offense to race thompson obviously he's been you know a big part of the hoosiers for what five years now
0: honestly he was only there for four i really i was surprised i was surprised by that fact too
1: well no disrespect to him or miller cop who i know was just a recent acquisition for the hoosiers but There's no questioning Trace Jackson Davis, you know, tenure with the Hoosiers, you know, one of the best players to, to play for you guys. And that's a long list of guys who've made their way through Bloomington. So yeah, that in of itself is a huge loss, you know, it's, you can't really replace a guy like Trace Jackson Davis. You can hope to, but there's no guarantee, you know, it could be years before you get a player of that caliber again in the building, but. And then you pair that with, as you said, the potential of losing Jalen hood you know, I, I could see it, it, it having a big impact on the Hoosiers, You know, needless to say, moving forward. Of course, like you said, you'll get into it a little bit more next week, but definitely a big loss for the Hoosiers.
0: So any thoughts about where you see IU starting out, though? I know this season I kind of laugh because IU is rated higher than Purdue. I figure it's time for you to get to rub some smoke back in my face here for a second if you want it. I'm giving you know it a great I'm gonna shot. be pretty
1: nice. I don't I don't really have any expectations. You no, know, even with Purdue, I, there's no guarantee Edie comes back. We just talked about you know the transfer portal opening up. I don't really want to try to guess either team. I will say if Edie does come back, obviously Purdue should be rated higher than IU. But I've I've let you known before how. I feel like the committee favors the Hoosiers, but I digress. But I'll, I'll give you a better answer when we start seeing how the transfer portal plays out. We start getting some decisions off, you know, from guys like Jalen hood Shafino and Zach Eady.
0: Yeah. So the last part of this I want to add real quick before we jump into the, into some Pacers basketball is, again, we just alluded a second ago that Jalen hood Shafino could potentially leave IU, and I think that's why – there's a lot on the fence. Right now, according to writer Jonathan Weiserman at B- at Bleacher Report, he actually mocks as a as a mid first round pick. Actually, he's right on the line of being a lottery pick at 14th. Again, mm-hmm. if Hood Shafino feels like he can use another year to develop and he returns to IU, I think IU instantly is probably higher ranked than Purdue. Again, we talked about that guard play a little bit ago. If Hood Shafino leaves I mentioned in my article, I could really see it being a transition year for the team. You're going to have to figure out a way to basically at that point rebuild. Now, that being said, this is worth noting, Malik Renault and Jalen hood Shafino were actually friends. They went to the same high school together. I think that could play into Jalen hood Shafino's decision a little bit. But again, I think this isn't like Trace Jackson Davis where he, I think he waited too long to go to the NBA. I think Hood Shafino could use another year to really develop again. I, I put my, my NBA comparison of him at Kobe Bryant. And I know that that is bold to state, but if people have not seen how Hood Shafino shoots,
1: he, how he, he does. Plays, he has one of the most pure jump shots I've ever seen.
0: It's beautiful. I'd love to see it another year, you know, you talk about Jaden Ivey being your player that you'd root for. I plan on rooting for Hood Shafino in the NBA no matter where he goes. And that's if it's now. It's if we get IU gets a lucky another year with him. Now, one other thing to make note of, and I know we can talk more about it next week. Again, I know that Malik Renault will be returning. He probably is the rightful heir to Trace Jackson Davis' position. He is more of a power forward by size. He only measures out at 6'8". He's actually a bit lighter than Trace Jackson Davis at 215 pounds. Again, there's still questions of Xavier Johnson getting a medical hardship to return. Now, you do have Gabe Cuffs and Malachi Newton coming in, but they're both guards. So I think use guards look good next year. It's your, your forwards that you need to get. And so with that, Again, Woodson did a great job keeping the team together last year, but this is a whole new ball game for him now. You're talking your true first chance at an entire roster that you've developed. Again, the holdovers are gone. Again, you, I don't know if Galloway and uh, Xavier Johnson or Geronimo or Bates were recruited by, by Archie Miller. But, again, most of the significant starters on this team are going to belong to Woodson's classes. And, again, he's going to have a true test of stepping up. Oh, yeah.
1: Once you start getting into the guys that he brought in, that's when you can really begin to start evaluating his job and how he's done recruiting and coaching and all that, which we discussed earlier in the podcast as well, that it was going to take one or two cycles of his guys before you could really get a read on, you know, his time with, in Bloomington. Yeah, so I'll let
0: everybody know. Again, you can read my a per- little bit more of my personal takes on this, on Hoosier State sports. But I want to go ahead and dive into the Pacers, just because I know it's been two weeks now since we've talked about them. We've We've talked a lot about the college scene. But I want to take a brief look at their last couple of weeks. So two weeks ago, they had three significant games. They lost to Philadelphia 147 to 143. It was actually the Pacers' highest scoring game of the season and that game, the only reason I'm mentioning it besides that is you had 84% attendance at Bankers Life Fieldhouse or sorry, Gainbridge Fieldhouse, but again, that was a game where Will Farrell showed up, 50 Cent showed up, They had, he had been doing a lot of promotions around town for a couple days leading up to it. Again, you had Colts receivers Michael Pittman Jr. and former legend Reggie Wayne. along with Yes, the, it's not every
1: day you get names like that popping in the building. So,
0: again, 84% attendance. That's a little concerning. And it was against Philly, who is, like, one of the better, you know, teams for attendance in the leagues. Right? Maybe, maybe it was an expensive game. I don't really know. But their second game they played, they actually ended up beating Houston. They won that game 134 to 125. Again, Houston's one of the team's worst leagues, or one of the league's worst teams. Not really a shock. The big significant piece to come out of that game is Halliburton broke the team record with 19 assists. So again, that's an impressive game by anybody, and I don't know what the NBA record is. I want to say it's either 24 or 21. It's not a whole lot higher, but again, we know Halliburton's capable of that. I could see him actually going for the NBA record at some point, and I oh, think yeah. that's just what he loves to do. So again, well especially if you continue
1: him. to put some of these young shooters around him.
0: And again, I want to actually that's why I'm glad I brought this next or I'm gonna bring up this next game. So again, I or the Pacers then had a two game sequence against Detroit. They faced Detroit last, I wanna say it was either Sunday or Monday night before the podcast. And that game they won. And, again, both of those games were played at Detroit, as were all of their games this this past week. So, again, going up to Detroit for the first game, you didn't have Benedict Mathurin. You didn't have Tyrese Halliburton. So, again, Halliburton was actually injured in the previous game, so he was ruled out, and then Miles Turner was out. So, again, that's not a game you really expect the team to win, but somehow they get it done. Jalen Smith came in with 20 points and nine rebounds. Andrew Nebhard came in with 19 points and eight assists and Isaiah Jackson, not a name I've actually ever gotten to mention on here before, but he contributed 19 points and 11 rebounds. Again, we've talked on here before about, you know, the lack of rebounding that sometimes comes from miles Turner again, all or Smith and Jackson is power forwards. I feel that they've been underutilized on this team. Hopefully, maybe they'll start getting some deeper looks. I think the Pacers owe that to themselves, depending on, to the previously alluded to, will they make the playoffs or not? I think that decides what you do with those guys. But anyway, so this week, we'll finally jump to last Monday. And again, they faced Detroit for a second time. And this time, they lost big. That final score ended up being 117-97. to 97. Detroit outperformed the Pacers in every critical area. I'm not even going to dive into it because you look at every stat, threes, rebounds, shot percentage, you know, contributions on the court. Detroit was all around better. There's nothing positive. I could. And again,
1: Unfortunately for myself, Adam, Jaden Ivey missed both of those games for Detroit. So I did not get to see any Jaden Ivey versus Pacers, but that's okay.
0: And. I've been wanting to see an Ivy versus Mathurin the matchup all year, given they play the same position. I think yep. we'll have to wait till next year. I believe that that series is wrapped up, but the second game, let me talk about the key contributions. So buddy healed. If this shows you how bad they played, he was basically their fourth leading scorer, he had seven and had eight rebounds, but Jordan Noria is the guy that I love to pick on. And I hate to love. But again, he scored twenty. He was the leading scorer for the team, and then Aaron Naismith had fifteen. Not the guys you want having to make shots. So again, they got some work to do.
1: Well, again, good. Again, like we've said, you know, for the last couple of weeks, as far as Jordan Nawara goes, not bad for a throwaway that was a part of that trade that you guys had with Milwaukee at the deadline, which is a perfect transition into the next game, Adam.
0: Yes. Yeah, so again. Pacers got their best win of the season against Milwaukee this week. That score was 139 to 126. Now, Miles Turner did return. That is a bit significant. I think that ultimately is what led to that win. Again, 11 points and 8 rebounds. He's not their best player in that game. But again, you had other contributions from players that weren't starters in that game. So if I am correct, I believe that you had eight players that had double digits. It was a huge wow. game. So looking at the notable performers in that game, again, Andrew Nebhardt, he had 24 points and five assists. Smith had 22 points and five rebounds. Buddy Heald got back to his scoring ways after some recent struggles. He contributed 20 with six assists and some rebounds. T.J. McConnell had 15. Jordan Noria had 12 points and 9 rebounds. Again, he's kind of been leading the team in rebounding here lately, too. And then finally, and I love saying this one, George Hill scored 15. Nice to see a guy that barely gets to play any games for the team actually come out and get to score some points.
1: Remind me again what year it is, Adam. 2023. <laughs> A little bit of a blast from the past here in that stat line from George Hill for the Pacers.
0: That's exactly what I was thinking about, you know. And I, I looked up the game this week. I'm like, really, George Hill scoring 15? I didn't, uh, unfortunately, with the whole Valley Sports, I don't get to watch those games. Well, and
1: of course, it was important to get that kind of performance as a as a whole because you guys were still missing Halliburton in that game. So and the fact the Yeah, so the fact that you got eight players in double digits, three of which over 20 points, that's pretty damn good. It is pretty good, I agree.
0: All right, so we were talking about, again, Milwaukee, how the Pacers beat them. And so in this final game the Pacers played this week, Pacers ended up getting blown out by Philadelphia by a final count of 141 to 121. Most of or all of the games that Indy has played against Philly have been close this year, but Philly had our number all year, beat us all four times, and well, averaged over 130 playing those games. So for Philadelphia in that game, Tyrese Maxey, Joel Embiid each scored 31, Tobias Harris had 24. This game is significant for them because they did not have James Harden playing. Now, when you look at the Pacer sides of things, again, Aaron Naismith had another excellent game, 25 points and six rebounds. Miles Turner had 20 points and five rebounds. Again, Andrew Nebhardt, I love being able to say his name, continued to play well with 22 points and two assists. And then Noria, again, led in rebounds. Three consecutive games with Turner back. So he had 13 points and contributed nine rebounds. Now, pretty packed week for the Pacers. Pretty packed two weeks, really. But we talked earlier about how the Pacers might still be in the playoff hunt. And again, this kind of shocks me given the difficult schedule they've played. They've been playing a lot of away games. So where the Pacers currently sit, they are at 11th in the Eastern Conference. So right now that puts them at one and a half games from Chicago for the play-in tournament. Because again, that tournament goes from the first to the 10th seeds. One and a half games, Joey. So this week, though, Pacers have four games. Unfortunately, are all away. And I believe they have 11 games left. So those four teams that they face are as follows, in order. You face off against Charlotte, and that's tonight. You face off against Toronto, in Toronto. You face Boston, in Boston. And then you go for your final game this weekend and face Atlanta. So, Joey... Here's my here's my question for you on this. How does the team fare this week with those four away games?
1: Well, it's a little early to tell, but I will notice a trend just over the games that you've mentioned in the last 2 weeks in 6 games they've won 3 and they've lost 3. So yeah. just going off the of recent trends, I could see them splitting those two games. You know, I see them beating Charlotte. Toronto I think could give them problems. Boston we know could give them problems and think they could beat Atlanta so I could very well see them splitting splitting those two games
0: so with a split though you think the team comes in and can make the playoff with a split or do you think that they need to win more than that in order to even have a chance to make the playoffs
1: well I think a lot of it depends on you know what Chicago does I know they're what is it a game and a half behind Chicago to get into the play-in tournament you said yeah uh, well, I'll say this much: with Halliburton and Mathurin coming back, I could see them maybe taking a step up. You know, anything can happen, like we've been talking about with college ball. You know, they get in, they could be just as dangerous as anybody, especially if Halliburton and Mathurin get back to being completely healthy. You know, you're starting to see some guys like Jordan Nuara, you know, McConnell, Nimbard all step up. So. If they can somehow find their way in, I can see them, you know, being, being a dangerous team.
0: And this is a team that we're talking about that, you know, they've really played through a lot of starters being out at different points this year. And again, same trend that's going on right now. I would say like we alluded to a second ago, and I'm not going to say so much Mathurin because again, we know what he can do for scoring off the bench, but Tyrese Halliburton is this team. If he <coughs> plays, and he plays as early as tonight, I, I haven't really looked at what the plans are, to be honest. But if he plays early this week, and the team can even go 3-1, and one, let's say, in the games that they play this week, that's a huge momentum shift trying to get them in the playoffs.
1: Well, and not to mention the earlier Halliburton can get back in there the quicker he can get back you know, into the rhythm. Because we saw right after he returned from that, what, three-week injury that he had, yeah, it took him a week or two to kind of get his feet back under him. So I will throw that in there also. The earlier he returns, the more dangerous I believe they could be if they squeak into that play-in tournament.
0: So when you start looking at all of that, as a Pacers fan like myself, again, the key question starts to become, do you risk – the early draft pick or not. And again, I think this, this is the week to make that determination. I don't think you can go into next week thinking, oh, we have seven games left, let's make a playoff push. I think if the Pacers lose out or they go even one in three, the season needs to be done. And that's why I alluded to earlier, you start really then looking at your bench talent, evaluating what you really have on this team, because the team has seven draft picks next year. I mentioned this in my article that I wrote right after the trade. We have seven draft picks and three of them are first rounders. One of them is Houston second, which is a very early second again. And again, at, for the team going in to this week, you have to start, you have to figure out what your identity is going to be. Do you want yeah. your identity to be a winning team that barely makes the playoffs, which spells out what you've been every other year Um other than last year, or do you look at okay? Let's let's take this rebuild seriously and really try to get the best talent that we can because we're a small market team.
1: It'll it'll be interesting to see what the tone of our conversations next week are, you know, about the Pacers. Like you said, it has a lot to do with what happens in these next four games.
0: Yeah, this is a very important week. Hopefully, maybe we'll be having a conversation like Pacers win all four. Let's go for the playoffs. But, again, that was not the expectation coming into this year. I have even told you I was hoping for a rebuild. Give us a couple of years. But, again, I think, you know, we are, we are people about winning at this point. We need to feel some sort of success somewhere. But speaking of hopefully winning, let's dive into some Colts talk. So what do you have for us on that?
1: Yeah, so last week before we talked about college ball, we, we mentioned a few moves that have been made you know, by the Colts between departures and signings. But I'm just – let's kind of go through all of these again this week now that we have a little bit more time to discuss. So, departures so far for the Colts now that free agency is open. Brandon Faison has signed with the Raiders, which means he will be returning to Las Vegas. We talked about this last week briefly. We both are okay with this move. We're not really losing anything of value there. No. Bobby Okereke signs a four-year, $40 million deal with the New York Giants. Again, we talked about it last week. And we'll, uh, we'll get into it with the returning free agents here in a minute. But uh, also, Paris Campbell will be joining Bobby Okereke in the Big Apple. He signed a one-year, $1.7 million deal with the Giants. That kind of surprised me, Adam, if that yeah. was the price tag. I don't understand why the Colts didn't keep him.
0: Yeah, I mentioned that in my article, too. I really think that if that's all you're paying him, we could have done that. Yeah, of course, he's coming of- off
1: that season where it was his really his first healthy season since he's been drafted, and we started to see some signs of the players we thought we was going to get. So I don't really understand why we couldn't, at the very least, match that offer that the Giants gave him to retain him, but either way. Uh, another one we briefly talked about last week, Stephon Gilmore traded to Dallas in exchange for a fifth round compensatory pick that frees up 9 million dollars in cap space and we talked we briefly talked about this also last week the Colts released quarterback Matt Ryan before the March 17th deadline to free up 17 million dollars in cap space so with that freed up cap space you might be asking what are the Colts spending it on so they signed kicker Matt Gay to a four year deal which we also discussed last week Largest deal for a free agent kicker in NFL history, which still kind of puzzles me. Yep. And while we're on the topic of kicker, I do want to apologize last week. I know that is not it is not Badgley that we had last year that earned a job. <laughs> it was Chase McLaughlin that bugged the crap out of me when I listened to that back. But moving on, the Colts also re-signed wide receiver Ashton Doolin to a two-year, $9.2 million deal. you okay with this move, Adam?
0: Well, knowing what Campbell signed for, I'm a little less okay with it. But, again, I mentioned in my article, I, I, I graded this move out as a C. And my big reason behind that is, if you're giving him this money, is he planning to develop as a receiver, even with Michael Str- or Strawn still on the team? Is this a sign that the team are going or the team is gonna be drafting a receiver? Do you really value him that much on special teams? I'm I'm kinda in the middle on this contract until I know a little bit more about it, but I'm not gonna say I'm angry about it. No. Well, so. And it
1: is worth mentioning that as a member of the special teams, Ashton Doolin does own one second team all pro appearance as a special teamer. And of course, this past season we got to see a little bit of a glimpse of what he can do in the wide receiver position, but I kind of agree with you to see that Campbell only went for 1.7 million and we
0: 6.7.
1: Yeah. And we gave Doolin basically four and a half million a year. It kind of puzzles me, but uh, moving on, the Colts have also signed defensive tackle Taven Bryan to a one year $4.5 million deal. You know, Chris Ballard likes his defensive linemen.
0: I'm still disgusted by this move,
1: <laughs> which moves us to our next signee. edge rusher, Samson, Ebicon from the 49ers signed with the Colts on a three year, $27 million deal. Another depth piece for the defensive line of Chris Ballard. How do you think about, or what do you think about that move, Adam? I know that you kind of broke this news to us at the very end of the episode last week. So we didn't really get to yeah get your take on it.
0: I graded out as a high move. Again, I—I I, first off, I love the name, obviously, you know, like, you know, I loved Yannick last year. So I, I look forward to him being announced with the starters, which is what I think this contract is. So again, you're, you're signing him to a, a smaller market deal than Yannick. Again, man, Yannick has the production, but to get a deeper look, everyone can look at my article about what I wrote about Samson, but basically, the pressures that he gets on the field, he has a pressure rate that's actually like twice as high is what Yannick does, could lead to a sign of sacks. Again, you have Grover. You have DeForest Buckner on that line. You have two strong presences. I see Samson making a big step up in a big way, and I'm talking – again, this is bold. I'm talking double-digit sacks. Uh, I, I,
1: just to play devil advocate here for a minute, Adam – the Colts do not have Nick Bosa lined up on the other side, so I, I could see that, that win rate percentage <laughs> coming down a little bit because of that, but I do still think it's a good signing. And $9 million a year, if he does have any kind of contribution up towards that double-digit sack range, and that's a steal. And then it, finally, the Colts signed quarterback Gardner Minshew to a one-year, $3.5 billion deal. What's your thoughts on this, Adam? You think he's here to be a bridge quarterback? You think he's here to be a backup? My my article, I was,
0: I was pretty consistent on my thoughts on this. I believe that you don't sign him to be a long-term starter. Obviously, it's a one-year deal anyway. But this is your safety valve in case the starter does not develop this year which kind of leads towards, you know, the whole Anthony Richardson potential drafting. Maybe it's a prediction. I don't really know. But again, I gave this deal an A because you're talking a quarterback that is only signed for $3.5 million this year with incentives can get up to 5 That's actually less than Taylor Henicky In his contract, he could be guaranteed as much as 8 And then some of the other backups, uh, Mike White, I believe, or sorry, I was wrong on, my terms. Mike White is the one that got an eight-year average salary, and then you had Heineke, I believe, get six to seven. So again, you're signing Minshew, who has over six thousand throwing yards, to a contract that basically is actually better than some of the other backups. You know, he comes in with starting experience, and maybe he has some secrets about Jacksonville he'll share well, too.
1: And not to mention just the versatility of Minshew. He can come in here, he can be the backup. Or if we really need him to be, he could be that bridge quarterback. As you mentioned, he's got over 6,000 yards, which means he has starting experience. And he was a Colt killer in his time with Jacksonville, let me tell you. Yes. But another another big thing about Minshew is he has experience in Shane Steichen's offense. So that's just another guy that some of these other you know young guys can come up to and ask questions You know, as far as terminology and stuff goes in Steichen's offense. So, overall, I think that's a really good signing by the Colts. What his role is is yet to be seen. I know he said he's open to any role. But, well, that's kind of gets us up to date. Oh, one more. Sorry, I did forget. This is referring to losing Bobby O'Carricade in New York Giants. The Colts re-signed EJ Speed last week. We did mention that, too. I don't remember the terms on that one, Adam, do you? It was this is gonna two year nine million or something.
0: That it's it's very close to the duel terms, I believe. I thought
1: so. But and of course that's a guy who you and I both think will obviously have an elevated role with Bobby O'Karake departing. So that should bring us up to date on all the Colts signings. I know we kinda of rushed through that pretty quick, but it's a long it was a long episode as it was. We had a lot to say about college basketball, but I do have one more
0: thing I'd like to push out. Go ahead. So, again, we've talked about what we've done so far. Is there anything in free agency remaining to this point you'd like to see? I know that today I got heartbroken that Dalton Shorts and Devin Singletary both signed with the Texans. Yep. So that's terrible for my fantasy teams next year. But anything that you want to see kind of happen for the remaining terms of free agency?
1: Uh, some of our biggest hole obviously will be addressed in the in the draft. But you know, I am kind of concerned about our depth at the cornerback position. I know you're not so much, but Faison, who I'm not disappointed about losing, and obviously Gilmore being traded to the Cowboys. Those those were two of your starting cornerbacks last year, which leaves us with. You know, Isaiah Rogers, who I'm a big fan of. Your guy Brandon Flowers, I believe is Dallas Flowers, sorry. Mm-hmm. So we have a couple young guys, but I do think you need to add to some depth for the cornerback position. I don't know what's out there or what's available. And then obviously the other one I don't really think is all that realistic, but I'm not giving up complete hope on Lamar Jackson yet. I'm not going to do it.
0: I'm I'm going to have to inform you of some bad news on that one too. Go so. ahead. Stephen Holder, who's the ESPN reporter for the Colts, and again, worked for Indianapolis for a number of years. Again, this, this report came out two hours ago, so bear with me. Again, reports have said that Indianapolis has not ruled out having discussions with Jackson, according to team sources. However, the club has not taken any substantive steps towards Jackson and is unclear whether it tends to do so. Team hey. sources have expressed that they are skeptic about pursuing him.
1: All I'm saying is that first first line you use there that they have not ruled it out, leaves the door open, which means I will not give up hope just yet.
0: i I think it's okay that we go ahead and just start talking about Anthony Richardson. I, it's okay. We can do it.
1: Well, and I think it's okay <laughs> that we move on to verse of the week. Is that all right with you, Adam?
0: I'm good with that too.
1: <laughs> all right, so this week's verse of the week, you know, Today, as we record this, is the first day of spring. I know it doesn't feel like it everywhere, but you're going to start seeing the flowers bloom. You're going to start seeing the trees fill up, and it's really, you know, a beautiful time of the year, you know, outdoors. So, which brings me to my verse, which comes from Romans 1.20. It says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So, all the time you hear people, you know, whether it be atheists or just skeptics in general, is I got to see it to believe it. And I'm sure you've been to this place, Adam. You look at a sunset and it's just one of the most beautiful things that you've ever seen. And you think, you cannot tell me that there wasn't a creator for all this. And it says right here in the Bible, that verse I just read you, that that is the proof that people need look around look at the beauty of nature look at you know how complicated life is in general and then try to convince yourself that there's not a creator of all this and i just don't think you'd be able to convince yourself of that
0: i think sometimes you know like i have a certain song that i listen to i'm not going to jump into it on here but
1: you don't want to sing it for us
0: no i for me i listen to music like uh, instruments is something to kind of get my thoughts going on something. And in the song that I listened to, you know, it kind of think about my kids. I think about, you know, fun, fun memories and fun times. You know, I had some similar thoughts on my way to work this morning with the sunrise that I got to see. It was very beautiful this morning. And I think, you know, a lot of people take, take a lot of that for granted, but don't realize too, like you said, that, you know, it all has to come from somewhere. And again, I think that's the beauty of the relationship that people can have with God is, you know, there's qualities that he's not always going to like show us, but it's like, there's things there that like you look at sometimes and it's like, this is a perfect moment. And you know, it's all because he was able to create that for us.
1: Yep. The proof is all around us at any given moment. Exactly. All right, Adam, I think it's been a pretty good episode. I know we've kind of, run a little longer than usual here but i got some stuff off my chest about purdue we got caught up on the pacers talk i think we're setting up good for next week bro
0: with a lot of iu and purdue talk again about the futures that's right again a quick apology to everyone just again you might hear some weird pauses we had some technical issues earlier which are my fault so hopefully i will be pardoned
1: for that hey i forgive you for what I appreciate worth. that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. I thank you once again for listening. I hope you enjoyed. I look forward to talking to you guys again next week, but until then you can find us at who's or at who's state sports on Facebook, but until next week, God bless
0: and everyone. Have a good week.